Amen. Amen. Please remain standing and hear the word of our God now. We continue in the Gospel of John. I'll be reading from chapter 2, verse 13 through the end of the chapter. And these are the words of God. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. I'm sorry, I've been beginning the wrong... Oh, no, I need to start at verse 12, sorry. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured over the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in a man. These are the words of God. Let's ask God's blessing upon it now. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and so enlighten our way with it, the way to you and the way we should go, the way we should think and live about you and before you. Bless now the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be sitting. So we're now in the area, beginning with chapter 2, called the Book of Signs. We'll find seven different signs that will come forth. Um, but we've seen the one. The one was in the beginning of, of this chapter. It was when the wa water was turned into wine. And we saw that the sign is pointing to the thing that it signifies. It was, it was a true miracle that had taken place. But the point of John recording this sign was not just to show that Jesus could do really cool supernatural things. But rather it was pointing and teaching us something about how the old was going away and the new was being brought in. The ceremonial washings of the old covenant are being replaced and fulfilled with the glorious wedding and wine of the new covenant. That was the first 11 verses. And now he comes to the temple on Passover, and there's another old, new um, event that is taking place, an old, new prophecy that is being declared. The old temple is going to be replaced and fulfilled as well with the new temple. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. And we'll see this theme throughout uh, in this section, really chapters 2, 3, and 4. In this section, Christ is coming into the temple as prophet, priest, and king. We'll see as a prophet that he gives an exhortation and a prophecy of future events. Prophets both speak forth God's word and also um, speak forth what God is going to do in the future. And as a prophet, he does exactly that. As a priest, he comes in and inspects, discovers, and deals with corruption in a house. And we'll see this in a little more detail in a moment. And then finally, as a king, he declares the building of a new temple for a new kingdom. In addition, and there are these verses here at the end in 23, 24, and 25, we learn in these verses that Jesus knows what is in a man. And this can be haunting, should be haunting to us. This means that he knows what 
what is in you at the heart level. This means that Jesus knows you probably better than you know yourself. And Jesus is, and, and, and you aren't as honest about yourself as Jesus actually is about you. And he has come also to unilaterally do something about it, to the praise of his glorious name and to his mercy for us. Well, let's start here. Let me give you some context about the temple, the temple in the first century, this temple that Jesus has come to, temple that is being built by King Herod and, and has been built for several years and decades now. This temple was a massive structure. It was really known as one of the wonders of the world in its day, which had been repaired and expanded by King Herod. It was estimated to be able to hold 210,000 people inside of it. It was huge, and it was glorious. Um, in Matthew chapter 24, when the uh, disciples turn to Jesus and they say, um, look at this glorious temple. They're probably standing um, east of the temple in the morning looking at the temple. And as the sun would rise, the sun would hit the gold all over the temple, and it would display a, such glory that you, people said you couldn't look at it. It would, just, it would just be just radiant with the sun beaming off of it. This was the glorious temple of King Herod. This was the glorious temple of the Lord. It was a place that under David and Solomon, God had promised that he would dwell with his people. In 1 Kings, it says, then, when, then the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, if you'll do these things... Then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. That was the promise that God had given, that he would dwell with his people here in this temple, and he would do so as long as they kept his commandments, as walked in them and performed all that he commanded. It had been under construction, we see here in this passage, for 46 years, it says in verse 20. And this build-out, just so you know, would continue all the way until 63 AD. Now, um, actually, because this notation of 46 years is given, if you look at other historians, Josephus, Eusebius, and, uh, and others, that, that helps you actually date um, when this ministry is taking place, probably around 27, um, within a year or two, on either side, um, 27 AD would have been when Jesus begins this, his ministry um, in, in the temple here on this Passover. But it's going to go from 27 AD all the way till 63 AD before the temple is going to be completed. It's going to take nearly a century. And, um, and, and as it's finished, it's only going to be finished for about three years. And then Rome will surround it. And, and besiege it, and by 70 AD, it will be completely leveled all the way to the ground. The temple in Jerusalem was home to the priests and all ceremonial sacrifices. Um, it, it's important to remember that you were not, as a Jew, um, allowed to offer sacrifices in your home or in the synagogues of your city. Sacrifices to the Lord had to be made by going to the temple, by traveling to Jerusalem. And um, all Jews, at least the heads of households, but the whole family could come, all Jews were required three, uh, for three major feasts each year to travel to Jerusalem uh, for these major feasts and, and times of sacrifice. The one that is in this passage is Passover and then the following feast of unleavened bread, which would go on for a week. Historians disagree as to how large Jerusalem was at this time, but all agree that it swelled to three to five times its normal size during these feasts. 
That means if, and it's, it, it, we aren't sure the population of Jerusalem, but if Jerusalem was, say, 30 to 70,000 people normally, it could swell to two, uh, 250,000 or more during the time of the feast. And some historians even make it larger than that, a larger city. But regardless of how, how large the city was, they all agree that, you, you know, imagine, imagine five times the amount of people coming to Woodenville to celebrate for a week together in a party. Just, just imagine the, 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 the traffic and where everybody's going to stay and, and all of this. It, it, and and it's, it's a glorious party that everyone looks forward to, a glorious uh, several days of feasting. Um, again, a number, number of historians talk about uh, in the evenings there would be all these, um, like, circus-like events, acrobats and, and, fest and festivities and all kinds of entertainment that was going on. It was a big party, and everybody, um, everybody went. So, worshipers traveling to Jerusalem were required to bring with them a tithe of their harvest. Deuteronomy 14 allowed one to bring money representing that harvest to make traveling easier. So, rather than having to put one of your 10 newborn calves um, in your truck, along with, uh, you know, a couple acres of your, uh, of your latest grain that you'd harvested, you could sell that in your home, or in your home city, Take the money and then bring that to the city where you then would buy, purchase the sacrifices that you would need to offer and, and that kind of thing. So it was this exchange that was going on. Once in Jerusalem, you'd spend that money on the sacrifices that you had to make. In addition, this was often the time that they would pay their annual temple tax. In Jesus' day, it had become required that all coins had to be exchanged for Tyrian coins. So people are coming from all these different lands. And there's all kinds of different coinage going on. But when it was brought to the temple, um, the, the uh, temple authorities had made new rules. And the rules were that the, the, temple, the annual temple tax had to be paid with the Tyrian coin um, from Tyre. And the reason it had to be made uh, was most likely because of its high purity of its silver. Some say also that it was because that the, uh, the coins from Tyre did not have an image of the emperor on them. And so it wasn't, there wasn't this image that was being used and being brought into um, and, and, and Caesar was, was being worshipped and you, this was not happening. You weren't going to bring this coin of this worshipped Caesar into the, into the temple. So Tyrian coins had to be used um, for the tax. So you got five times as many people. You, got, you, you have all of this purchasing that has to take place. You have all of this um, money that has to be exchanged, right? What could go wrong? Right? Well, here's what, here's what happens. Um, rental fees had to be paid if you were going to be some of the people that were going to be pro providing the animals that you're going to be purchased. And of course, those rental fees would be paid to the temple system, to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. Um, if you were going to be, uh, if you were going to be ha having your animal inspected, you know, so the people bring the animals, but then a priest has to inspect that um, animal and make sure that it is an, in it, that it's a firstborn and that it's uh, clean and it's, it doesn't have any impurities to it. And of course, there'd be a fee for that inspection that would take place. Well, there would also be currency exchanges taking place between um, whatever currency you brought and then the coin that you needed to get in order to pay the temple tax. And of course, there'd be a currency exchange fee that would be on top of that. Along with this, you'd be, there'd be fees for purchasing food and drink for the celebration. And in Jesus' day, all of this has been moved into the court of the Gentiles. All of this has been moved into the outer court, okay? So what's that like? What's that like when you're purchasing that food? It's like going to a Mariners baseball game and going and buying a hot dog and a beer 
and spending 25 bucks. Because where else are you going to buy it? You know, it's, it's, like going, um, it, it's like going into um, the, uh, uh, the theater, movie theater, and buying a tub of popcorn. Probably costs, what, you know, 40 cents to make, maybe, if the butter's thick. And you buy it for about, what, $8.50, $11.75, something like that. That's what's going on. Everything's been brought into the temple, and all the control is being done by the high priests, in order, in order to take care of all of the, um, all of the people. You, you might notice, in fact, that Jesus um, notes here, or John notes in here, that Jesus even uh, is, while well, he drives out the sheep and the oxen, he notes that the doves are there too, and he tells those of the owners of the doves to get those things out of there. Doves were a sacrifice that if you were poor, if you were poor, you, you wouldn't have to uh, come up with a sheep or, uh, or a, a a calf or a, or a bull or something in order for your sacrifice, you could bring um, a dove or you could purchase a dove. And again, it's, it's hard to know exactly the purchase price of all of these things, but some would say that that dove ought to be able to be purchased for about a quarter, for about 25 cents. And most likely it was being sold for about four bucks inside the temple. So this is what's going on. This is what John is recording. This is what Jesus is speaking about. This, this is the emporium, the bazaar, or as Jesus said, a, a house of merchandise. In fact, in, in, in that verse, that word merchandise in the Greek is actually emporium. It's, we get the idea of this big, huge festival, all enclosed, and, um, and all kinds of mayhem going on. Festival mayhem, lots, lots of fun, but a lot of money coming back and forth. So, let me think about, let me set the stage with one more, um, one more piece of this as well. John records the temple cleansing taking place in the beginning of Jesus' ministry here in John chapter 2. But you know, in all three of the other gospels, that cleansing of the temple is recorded at the end of Jesus' ministry, at, the, at his triumphal entry. And there's all kinds of arguments about whether or not there was actually two um, different cleansings that took place or whether or not John just takes that uh, cleansing, took place actually at the triumphal entry at the end of his ministry, but John puts it at the beginning um, for thematic reasons and not chronological reasons. And, and that's where most of the arguments go. But there is a view that there's, there's something else going on here. There's a good case to be made that there, were actually, there actually were two cleanings. In Leviticus 14, you don't have to turn there, I'll just explain this to you. In Leviticus 14, we are given the Levitical laws concerning a house that had corruption or leprosy in its walls. If a priest found that there was a plague in the structure of the house, then he would command the house to be, um, everybody to have to get out of the house, and then the house would be closed up for seven days. After the seven days, then the priest would come in again, and another inspection would occur. And if the corruption had spread, it was growing, then the priest would order that section of the wall to be dismantled and then replaced. And then after this, if the corruption broke out a second time, if he came in a second time and saw that there was, there was still this leprosy, this, uh, this mold or mildew or what they would call a corruption, then the whole house was to be demolished. And in fact, in Leviticus 14.45, not one stone left upon another. So this may correspond to what Jesus is doing, what we're seeing here at the beginning of his ministry in John. At the beginning, he inspected his father's house. And what did he find? He found corruption. And so he cleanses it. Three years later, he comes back 
in, at the end of his ministry for a second ins inspection, recorded in like Matthew chapter 21. He found the house still unclean and ordered its complete destruction. This is what he'll say in Matthew chapter 24, verse 2. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. There's at least an allusion to the idea of the Levitical house uh, or the house that the Levites would condemn being brought down and the Lord's house being condemned, the temple being condemned for its corruption um, at, in Matthew chapter 24. That will then take place. Jesus says that will all take place in this generation. And 40 years later, after that prophecy, this prophet's prophecy comes true and the temple is completely leveled and destroyed, never to be raised again. That temple has never been raised again. So what's going on here? What are we to learn and see about this? Well, John may be choosing to give an account for the first inspection as it is also important in this ongoing theme of the old passing away and the new coming in. So it's not just a judgment upon the old temple, but also that that temple had, had fulfilled its purpose, which was to point to something, to signify something else. The new temple, the glorious temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Holy Spirit who we are, the, the new temple. Jesus does this with great zeal. Look at, look at verses 15 through 17 again with me. When Jesus had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Zeal, zeal is a tricky thing. Think about this for a moment. Zeal is a tricky thing. There is a godly zeal that is not losing your temper, okay? Godly zeal never excuses disobedience to God or a lack of self-control. So Jesus, it's not that Jesus was overcome and lost his temper and he just kind of had to let it out. Like we think we have to with our godly zeal. That's not what's going on. There's a prophetic action that's actually taking place here. There's godly zeal and anger in Jesus, but it's completely, it's completely controlled. It's completely in, in control. And the actions that he's taking is actually a prophetic action to, de to declare um, what's going on in the temple and what God's going to do. And his prophetic action and his cryptic answer to their question of his authority then proves it. When he gives an answer about what's going to happen to the temple and then connects that really in, in an odd way that doesn't, isn't going to make sense to the people at all at that day, that it's actually his body that is going to be raised. He says, just you, he says, you destroy the temple and in three days I'll raise it back up again. Well, there's both a prophecy of the temple that's coming down, but actually there's a prophecy of how a new temple is going to be brought forth because he, as John records, Jesus was speaking about his body. Well, um, again, just to, just to clarify this, animal merchants had and could set up stalls across the Kidron Valley on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. It wasn't always that the sacrifices had been brought in to the temple. But now they were in the temple courts, and they were most likely in the court of the Gentiles. And the synoptics say that Jesus taught them, is it not written, my house shall be a house of prayer for the Gentiles, for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. You've taken the area that I want Gentiles to be able to come into. I want Gentile, pro I want all the nations, God says, in the Old Testament. 
I want all the nations to come and pray to me. And so the court of the Gentiles is set up as a place where they can come. Proselytes, those who are going to follow Yahweh, are to come in there. And they come in there, and there's just this bizarre going on. There's, there's this emporium of things being sold. There's no room or place to pray, and money is exchanging hands um, in, in great corrupt ways. Inside the temple, the priests controlled the prices, the exchange rates, and the fees. The corruption was rife, and everyone knew it. And I think that's why we see nobody stop Jesus. He's, there, there, was a, there was a tower just outside the, chin of the, uh, the, the uh, court of the Gentiles, and Roman guards were up there, and they were watching what was going on. And somehow, there's, there's not a call as there was when, when there's this mob that, that is uh, yelling about Paul later on in the book of Acts, but there isn't anything like that that happens, or at least that is recorded. Instead, as Jesus drives every, everything out, it's almost as though the greater population is like, this is a good thing. It's almost like the, the, the authorities kind of look at each other and go, you know, we've been caught here, haven't we? The only question to them is not, they don't turn to him and say, what in the world are you doing? Look, what, what do they say to them? They say uh, in verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? What is this, what, what is this authority? You prove to us that you have the authority to do this kind of thing. What's your point? Well, the officials may have already realized that the popular opinion was on his side. Psalm 119, it says these words. It says, my zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your word. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your word. The city of God and the house of God had become a city of merchants and a cleansing was needed. In Zechariah chapter 14, um, at the very end of, of Zechariah, there's a promise about um, how the house of the Lord is going to be reestablished. These words are said, everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite, which also can be translated a merchant. There shall, in that day, there shall no longer be a merchant in the house, in the, in the Lord's, uh, in the house of the Lord of hosts. Jesus comes in and sees that exactly the opposite is taking place and he judges it. He condemns this work pointing towards what a new temple is actually going to be like. Jesus says that his father's house has become a house of merchandise. In obedience to his father and to the word, Jesus disobeys the posted and duly authorized temple rules. All the licenses, I'm sure, were in order for all of the, for all of the tents that were set up to sell. The, the high priests had all set this up. Jesus starts turning tables over and throwing the money. In fact, the money that is being thrown is, uh, the word there is the small coins, most likely the coins used for, to, that you had to pay for the exchange rate in order to get, and, and Jesus is taking that, those pile of coins and he's tossing them over. He hates it. He hates what's going on. This was supported, supposed to be the court of the Gentiles, and instead it had become a place where Jews were fleecing Jews and Gentile proselytes. What we see here is an example of, obey, of obeying God resulting in disobeying tyrants. Again, the words from Psalm 119, my zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your word. They've forgotten your law. There's, again, in verse 18, there's this, this uh, demand for a sign. 
So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us, show to us, since you do these things? This demand for a sign shows up several times in the Gospels. They want to know, Jesus, show us a sign. Herod wants Jesus, Herod finds out that um, Pontius Pilate is going to bring Jesus to him, and he's excited because maybe he'll show me a sign. Maybe I can see a miracle. I want to see one of these tricks. Um, there's, there's a time where uh, the, the disciples and, uh, and the Pharisees actually ask him for a sign, and Jesus says, no, a sign is not going to be given to you, hard-hearted generation, except the sign of Jonah. And he gives this, this cryptic answer about the sign of Jonah. Just as he was three days and nights in the belly of, uh, of, of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And they walk away going, what sign is that? They have no idea what he's talking about. Well, this is, uh, this, this is what goes on several times. And, and while we have only seen one sign, only one sign so far in the Gospel of John, we've missed back in verse 12. It says, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. But if you go back and read the other Gospels, you'll see that in those many days, uh, or not many days, Jesus performed all kinds of signs and miracles all throughout Capernaum. This is the time that he raises, uh, or that he, for instance, heals Peter's uh, mother. This is the time that he, uh, uh, the, he crosses the sea and he, and he stills the water. There's a number of different things that take place um, during, uh, during this time. And, and uh, if, if you read carefully through Matthew chapters 8 and 9, there are actually 10 signs that Jesus did, including um, in Matthew 9, 35, it says, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And so it's not just that there were 10, but, but whoever came to him, he was healing and healing and, and healing all over the place. Um, and um, remember John 20, verse 30 says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Je John is not recording every sign. He's recording a specific set of signs in order to signify something, in order to teach us certain things. This section of the gospel is called the book of signs. So he's being offered an opportunity to show a sign. You kind of think he would step in and do so, but Jesus doesn't. He refuses to. He refuses to show a sign when the authorities ask for a sign to prove Jesus, to prove his authority. He only gives them a riddle of sorts, a cryptic answer similar to what he had said to his mother. Imagine, imagine not knowing anything about a the death and resurrection and hearing Jesus say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 46 years we've been building this thing and you think in three days you could raise it back up? And Jesus basically is saying, yeah, go think about that for a while. Don't forget those words. Those are prophetic words. And we're told, um, and we're told uh, when he had risen, verse 22, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Prophet and priest is before us here. But it is a true sign. It is a true sign that he gives, actually, pointing to something far greater than anyone was thinking. He foretells his death and resurrection, not in plain terms, but in figurative expressions. He does this, as I mentioned, also in Matthew 12, the sign of Jonah. When asked for a sign, Jesus regularly refuses. He regularly refuses when he asks for a sign in a particular way, or for particular reasons. And I've often thought about this, how he... Um, how many atheists, unbelievers do you know, who would say, if he just would show me a sign, if God would just do this, if I could just rub the genie bottle, make one wish, 
and then it was done for me, I'd believe. I just want to see one miracle, right? And Jesus regularly refuses to give a sign in that kind of way with that kind of um, attitude. He, he, he often refuses to give signs that are, that are alone to be used to convert anyone. Instead, like parables, Jesus speaks in such a way to the willingly ignorant that they might not perceive, that they might not understand. Jesus, through his parables, you see this all the time. In fact, in Matthew 13, Jesus says, when the disciples say, why do you always speak in parables? And Jesus says, so they won't understand. I speak in parables so the blind won't see. I speak in parables so the hear, those, who hear, those who are not able to hear won't be able to hear. But to you, I speak parables so that you can come, can come into a greater and deeper understanding. So listen to them and watch. Those who just want a trick, just want a sign, are going to find that they make no sense at all to him. And it'll only harden their hearts all the more. But to those whom God opens eyes to, the parables and these kinds of statements begin to make sense. Think about this for a second. Why doesn't Jesus always speak just kind of plainly? Why doesn't he say, I'm, I'm here cleansing the temple because of the Levitical laws, and in, I'm going to come back for a second inspection, and then the temple is going to be destroyed. And the reason the temple is going to be destroyed is because the temple was always pointing to a greater temple that was going to be fulfilled. All he says instead is, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now go back and think about that for a while. But that's the way Jesus teaches often. That's the way John presents the gospel to us often with things that we have to go away and ponder. The Gospel of John is set up for us, as is the entire Bible, in such a way that you can't get it the first read. You won't get it the first read. You've got to read and then read again and then begin to connect things together. And as you do, um, Proverbs says um, something to the effect of it's the, uh, it's the desire of, of, of the Lord to hide treasures, and it's, a, and it's his desire for kings to go and seek them out. We're to go and seek out the great treasures in the scriptures, which don't, that aren't revealed to us on the face of things all the time. And so, here's, here's what you should pack away. You should notice, as we're noticing as we go through the Gospel of John, that there are often times that you read things and you think, I don't know why Jesus is saying it this way. And you shouldn't just drop it. You should pack it away and remember and keep watching and see how things begin to connect. Consider all of the gospel. Consider all of, of the Old Testament practices and go back and see what Jesus said. Consider all that gets fulfilled in his death, burial, and resurrection and the establishment of the new covenant church and go back and see what he said. And all of a sudden, it's not just, it's not just that you'll figure out a riddle and, wow, wow, that's really cool, I figured out a riddle. No, actually something else even far deeper happens you realize who Jesus is. And these signs encourage your faith. They build you up in your faith. That This deeper understanding of what all these things are pointing to gives you a broader and deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that's been given to us so that we could understand. But there's a, there's, there's a straightforwardness to the answer as well. When, when, when Jesus... Um, gives this kind of answer. For believers, we often experience moments when God does something crazy and unexpected in our lives, other signs that, are, 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 that happen in our lives. And it, it, I don't know, isn't this true? Don't you find this? You are, um, you're going through life, you need, you need something desperately, and you ask God, and nobody else knows, and all of a sudden it kind of just shows up. 
And, and you just know that that was the Lord. Or, or God answers specific prayer to you in specific ways, and you just have a sense, because you know your Father, you know that was God directing the paths of others so that I would come to this place and receive this blessing. And you just know God's done this. God does this for, in, in our hearts and in our, in our lives, and he does so to encourage us in the faith, to strengthen our faith. Sometimes he's done such incredible, amazing things, it almost makes you nervous to admit it or to tell anyone else, you know, I'm not a crazy charismatic, you know, I'm not just... But God's at work in my life. He's doing crazy things. And, and, God, and Jesus does this in our lives, encouraging our faith. When we're open and obedient and seeking after him, not when we're demanding of him a sign. When we're demanding of him a sign, when we're treating him like a genie in the bottle, that's when you don't find him acting on, our, on your behalf at all. He is, you are not in charge of him. You're not in charge of him, and you're not in charge of your life um, um, and how he's going to answer those prayers in your life either. But he does encourage us. Okay, so finally, though, we need to also notice that the temple itself is a sign, pointing to the thing that it signified. Jesus is the place where men dwell with God, where people find the once-for-all sacrifice for their sins, where the word is written upon our hearts and where we abide with the Father. The old temple was falling away because something better, something better was coming. Jesus is your home. Jesus is your temple. And we also are that temple, for we are the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. And we don't all have to go to Jerusalem anymore to take our sacrifices to Christ, or to, to take our sacrifices to, to God. We come to Christ in faith, and Christ in us by His Spirit has made us the Holy, the, the, the Holy Spirit's temple. And the once for all sacrifice is all done. And every, every Lord's Day when you come and you hear your sins are forgiven, it's not because another sacrifice has been offered. When you come to the table, it's not because another sacrifice is being offered. But we are remembering and partaking of and enjoying the privilege of sins being forgiven without having to travel anywhere, without having to buy anything, because it's all been paid for. It's all been paid for in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all yours forever forever because the new temple has come because we are the new temple because the sacrifice has been given to us and the blood has been spilt fully and completely but there's a final section here that's just interesting and you have to ponder it now when he was in jerusalem at the passover during the feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did so far so good but then but jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and he had no need anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in a man. He knew what was in man. Um, if you look in your Bibles, I want you to see this. It says in verse 23 that many believed in his name. The verb there is pistuo. And then it says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. The verb there is pistuo. It's the exact same word. It could be roughly translated um, that they, uh, many saw, uh, during the feast, many believed in his name, but Jesus did not believe in them. He did not trust them. He did not commit himself to them. They were committing him, themselves to him, but Jesus was not committing himself to them. He who is the word incarnate has immediate apprehension of the mysteries and complexities of fallen man. And while we may see what a man does, 
Jesus knows what a man is. No tricking him. No tricking him. And he knows not to trust himself to any man. A very, very interesting phrase. Um, doesn't go very well with our kind of Disney um, mindset of find it deep within yourself, the goodness of your heart, and you will be able to change the world and make it a better place. The liberal theology out there that basically teaches that you are basically good. There's been some bad things that have happened to you, and they've made you a little selfish, and Jesus is going to come along and help you. He's going to teach you some really nice things and help you be a better person. Isn't he sweet? That is not the gospel. We're not a little bit sick. We're not even very sick. We're dead. We are dead and unresponsive to God. We, we hate God in our old nature. We hate him being our Lord. We hate his laws and his ways, and we want ourselves to decide for ourselves what is good and right. There are no good little boys and girls. Sorry, little boys and girls. And there are no good, and, good big people either. They're not until Jesus does something, until God does something from the very beginning. You see this in the passage. He wouldn't commit himself to any of them. He would not entrust himself to any of them because he knew what was in a man. Possibly in this section, it's referring particularly to the fact that, that they were responding to his signs, but not to the thing that was signified. And so um, you'll see this as, as he'll deal in the next chapters with a number of different individuals, with Nicodemus, who's going to be representative of all of Israel, to the Samaritan woman, who's going to be representative of the Gentiles, and to the lame man at Bethesda in the following chapters, chapters uh, 3, 4, and 5. Any of us are able to deceive men, but we cannot deceive Christ. It is a fine line, it is a fine line between having faith in Jesus because of the signs you see and because of what the signs signify. It's a fine line between believing on the Lord Jesus because of something he gave you and believing on the Lord Jesus because of your perception now of who he is. And that line it can be the difference between heaven and hell. That line of believing in Jesus, oh, I do believe he's a great miracle worker. I do believe that he can do all kinds of good things for me. I do believe that he has good sayings for me. Doesn't save anyone. But if those signs and sayings and teachings of Jesus reveal to you, or God uses them to reveal to you who he is and what he's done, that's the game changer. That's when everything changes from the inside out. Having faith in Jesus because he will meet physical, emotional, relational, vocational needs is in fact dangerous and spurious faith. Having faith in Jesus because these signs have revealed to you that he's the son of God, that he's the perfect high priest and the lamb of God, that he's the king of Israel, and that he is your Lord and master full of grace and truth, that is what evangelical faith, real evangelical faith gives. All that Jesus said and did points to the cross, which is a sign of the rejection of Jesus and the truth. All that Jesus did and says is pointing to the work that he is going to do on the cross, and that cross signifies the rejection of Christ by all men. And the good news is that God loves the world more than the world hates him. And so the cross is also a sign of the victorious love of God over you and for you. Not a declaration for you to be better, but a declaration that he will make you better, that he will bring you forth from the dead, that he will cleanse you, that he will bring you to his father and his father's house 
where he will dwell and abide with you forever and ever. Amen. It is the sign of his victory over a world that he would not commit himself to, but a sign of his victory over a world that he would give himself for. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Almighty God, you are full of mercy and truth. You hate all wickedness, and yet you have chosen to come to us in the person of your Son that we might be made clean that we might be purged of our wickedness and truly become sons of God ourselves. We praise you. We praise you for your righteousness and holy zeal and that you have loved us even in our hatred of you. Be pleased to mold and shape us as we walk in your ways. Lord, even in our midst, open eyes and hearts that tongues of praise would be broken forth as we sing to you now. For we ask it all in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and King. Amen.